0: Fantastic. Okay, so um, we're back and forth, back and forth. We're, we're coming to the end of Jonah, but we're not coming to the end of Peter, so I've got to figure out how to do this. Um, so we're in Peter today, and we're just starting chapter two, but we're in Jonah four. Probably next week I'm going to wrap up Jonah. Maybe I could squeeze two sermons out of it. I don't know at that end, but... Uh, We're also heading into Advent, and those of you that know me and have been here for a while, you know how much I love Advent sermons. I I look forward to them every year. All the Christmas sermons, I just can't wait. I have them on my calendar just ready to do that. So maybe I'll do that. I don't know. We did it for the past two years. So for those of you, before you send me an email, I've done it for the past two years. So I don't know if I'm ready for a third year. I just don't know that yet. But we'll see. We'll see. Or maybe we'll do Christmas in the Old Testament, something like that. I, I don't know, um, but we're probably gonna we're gonna wrap up Peter uh, and then start thinking about the the spring. What do you want? What do you want to hear in the spring? So remember, I usually take it. I take the fall to kind of say this is what I feel like God is doing and working in me over the summer that I'm really excited to preach about in the fall. That's usually what happens, um, but in the spring. I usually put it up to you. So if you have a real passion for a particular book that you want preached, uh, now's your time to write in. Amanda will take the tallies. Maybe I'll, we'll get together the next staff meeting and kind of put together a loose group of books that we could probably shoot for. You vote for it since the election season, and I go with it, okay? I'm telling you, I, I believe in democracy to an extent. All right. <laughs> You ready? So there's a Frontier Mission Journal uh, that did a study a while back on church planting that covered the past 50 years. Isn't that interesting? And it wanted to do research on uh, the demographics of church planting, the healthiness of church planting. And if the church plant survived and it became a new church, what, what was it like? Uh, how healthy was it? Uh, what was the demographics of the people involved, what was the the ministries like, what was the life of the church like, what was the mission like, all that, which is kind of really interesting to me. So here, what, what was the big takeaway, do you think, of the last 50 years of church planning? And if the church plant survived, it became a new church. What's the big takeaway from this research? You ready? Here it is. Too many church plants and new churches, if they survived, are weak, shallow, lacking life change. Did not expect that but I sort of expected that. So strangely, though, when you look at the research, it's not because of the lack of ministry. In other words, there's tons of ministry going on in all these churches. There are tons of active people in ministry in all these churches. So ministry's going on, active people in ministry's going on. And so I mean, there's evangelism, conversions, ministry training, church planning, new churches galore in all these churches they researched. So why the weakness? Why the shallowness? Why the little life change? I mean, the obvious question is what? Something's missing. What's missing that takes a church and doesn't make it weak but makes it strong? What's missing that doesn't make a church shallow but makes it deep? What's missing that doesn't make a church have little life change but life change, transformative life change that doesn't just inform but transforms? What's missing? That's the obvious question. Well, some church leaders, Bible experts, churches, Christians say they must be missing discipleship. Discipleship training programs, uh, the spiritual disciplines, no Bible, no breakfast. Accountability groups. Some church leaders, Bible experts, churches, Christians say, especially in our tradition, they must be missing theological education. Doctrine, theology, objective truth, the life of the mind, get it right. Some church leaders Bible experts, churches, Christians say they must be missing church tradition. Right? The church fathers, high church liturgy, the church calendar, ancient hymns and music, more sensory worship like icons, candles, scents, saints, performative rituals. That's what's missing. Some people, church leaders, Bible experts, churches... Christians say they must be missing meaningful personal experiences. You know, the life of the heart. One tradition wants to get it right, the life of the mind. Another tradition wants to get it felt, the life of the heart. And so the old schoolers in this tradition say you're missing the second blessing of the Holy Spirit. The new schoolers in this tradition say you're missing the signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit. And then the new Mystics in this day, the rising mystical movement that's happening in this day are saying you're missing more contemplative theology, more contemplative spirituality, a a more mindful way of being, a more mindful way of praying and connecting with God. But all seem to say, in all these traditions in this particular tradition, you're missing special anointed leaders to lead you. some churches, some Bible experts, some Christians say they must be missing meaningful church experiences, like deeply connecting worship, deeply connecting to each other, deeply connecting to mission and ministry. Whatever's missing, whatever it is, this much is clear. Everyone and the church is desperate for change. Everyone's desperate. We just don't know what gives it to us. We just don't know what brings it to us. We just don't know how it happens. But we all, across traditions, across theological systems, are desperate for it. Watch how desperate everybody's going to be in two days. Watch how desperate the networks are going to be in two days. Watch how desperate this culture is going to be in two days. Let's make it a little more personal, all right? Because that's always, when it's always out there, I always feel good. <laughs> I'm always like, yeah, those dang people, right? So countless teenagers have come to me over the years desperate for change. Countless wives have come to me over the years desperate for their husband to change. Desperate, right now, in this congregation, there are children who are desperate for a parent to change. Many times, too many to count, I am desperate to change. Are you? Are you desperate to change? If so, this passage is for you. For you, desperate person. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Verse 1, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord, we need you. Thank you for your spirit. We are weak. So right now we confess that we're weak. We're we're weak in understanding. We're weak in trusting. We're weak in feeling. Uh, Absolutely, we're so weak that you tell us it's impossible for us to do these things. You tell us that apart from you, we can't do these things. And so Lord, we need you. Holy Spirit, would you shine on the page into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, I need change. Is that you? I need change. Look at verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. This text is about the need to change. Do you see it? It's all about the need to change. Right at the very beginning, this is about change. But this, all those change realities there are specifically geared to relationships very interesting very little change is talked about just on an, a personal level like you just personally growing and maturing and finding yourself the bible i don't know where it talks about that but when it talks about change it's usually how you relate to people Isn't that interesting So the text, remember what we did before? All right, so it was Jonah last week. you got to go two weeks ago. Those of you that were here, we looked at the text immediately before this. We did the text immediately before this. That, That passage was also all about change. But do you remember what it was about? It was about change by addition. In other words, would you add some loyal love to your life? Remember that? It was like, love loyally. Do you long to love like that? We should long to love like that. Remember You were made to long to love like that. Well, this text is about the need to change, not by addition, but by subtraction. Do you see this? Put away disloyal love, this text is saying. You should long to change like this. You were remade to change like this, the text is saying. Theologically, the need to change by subtraction is called mortification, how many of you have ever heard that term, theologically? Great, fantastic, you geeks. Here's the deal. Mortification is killing sin. It's putting sin away. It's suffocating sin. It's atrophying the muscle of sin. So that's what it is theologically. And all of us are now asking, because it's just so normal and natural to ask, well, but how do you do that? Right? And what's fascinating is that the answer to that is as numerous as there are theological systems, traditions, preferences, and kinds of churches. So it can be a very confusing thing, could it not? I mean, if you're really wanting to change, to get rid of some things in your life that need to be subtracted from your life, and you're desperate to change, how do you start? Where do you start? Do you start with Tradition A or Tradition B or Tradition C? Do you start with what a group of folks said in 200 A.D. or 500 A.D. or 1500 A.D.? Do you look at Bible experts in different traditions? Do you look at your parents? Where do you look? Where do you go? May I be so bold as to say, maybe, maybe we just need to go back. Back to the texts and look at them afresh. And then bring um, people that you trust that handle the Bible and see how they look at it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the question how, but I'm going to pause it just for a second because we've got to figure out what are these relational sins that need to be subtracted from our life. Can we do that? Then we'll get to how and we'll figure it out. And I think it'll be a little more clear for us. For right now, what are the relational sins that you need to suffocate in your life, that you need to kill, mortify, the old theological word? Uh, the first one is all malice. Do you see that? That means stop being mean. <laughs> That's pretty self-explanatory, right? I mean, I, you don't, I don't need to spend a lot of time. Stop being mean. The only thing I would add to this is this includes you non-mourning people. I'm not looking anywhere on the front row. (laughs) The next one is all deceit. Do you see it? All deceit? This is Stop Being Mr. Hyde. H-Y-D-E. Remember Robert Louis Stevenson's classic, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Remember there's this doctor, Mr. Dr. Jekyll, and he would drink this potion, and he would turn into Mr. Hyde. It's an incredible story. Did you know that Stevenson was raised in a Presbyterian home? That he understood original sin? And what he was trying to actually communicate in that story is that you would drink a potion and it would reveal who you really were. Maybe the potion was your marriage. Maybe the potion was your work. Maybe the potion was some annoying person. But the potion you drank revealed this hideous, hidden monster deep inside of you, which has always been there, but it just took the potion to bring him out. And so Peter is saying that you and I have this hidden, hideous monster inside of us called deceit. In fact, the ancients, you know what they called deceit? The monster of underhandedness. That's how the ancients talked about deceit. So Peter says, you have this monster, it's hidden and it's hideous, and it's inside of you and it's called deceit. And he says, there are two potions that bring him out. So you've got to figure, what are the two potions that bring him out? The two potions are the only words that do not have all in front of them. So all malice, all deceit, and all slander are the main ideas. Hypocrisy and envy are the two potions that bring deceit out. So what's the potion of hypocrisy? When you, the potion of hypocrisy is the need for approval. When you drink that potion, when you need approval, you must, you need to think of yourself a certain way. You must, you need to have an image of yourself yourself. Portray an image of yourself. Why? You must have it for God's approval. You must maintain this image for your own approval, self-approval. You must have this image and portray it for other people's approval because the need for approval is so needy and so necessary. When you drink that potion, you must portray an image of yourself at all costs. And so you lie to protect the image you exaggerate to promote the image everyone knows in my house I never exaggerate <laughs> I mean as soon as I was reading this text I'm like oh gosh uh, do I still have to preach it? Um, the poison or the potion of envy what is that? That's the need to have what other people have. When you drink the potion of envy, you need someone else's recognition. You need someone else's success. You need someone else's money. You need someone else's home. You need someone else's smooth circumstances. You need someone else's beauty, their brains, their spouse. And when you drink that potion, the monster deceit comes out. All slander. This is another one that's pretty self-explanatory. This means stop saying unkind and untrue things about other people to other people. I mean, this never happens on social media. This never happens when you're mad at someone. This never happens when you lose control in an area. This never happens when you're in relational conflict. This never happens in church conflicts. This never happens to pastors. Are you desperate for change? I need change. This is a passage about change. How do we put away? How do you kill? How do you suffocate? How do you atrophy all malice, all deceit with the potions of hypocrisy and envy and all slander? How does that happen? The answer is found in verse 2. Now we're going to read. Let's put up verse 2. This answer is so stunning and it's so strange and it's so unbelievable that you're not going to believe it. It's so stunning. It's so strange. It's so weird that nobody knows how verse 2 connects to verse 1. So many people will actually divide them and put verse 1 up with the other group. But then they go, but that's kind of weird because that ended with good news. They didn't know. Nobody knows what to do with verse 1. But here's the great thing. I'm here to save you because God is in the grammar. So those of you that are in the Redeemer Institute, are you ready? Those in the elders, are you ready? The verse 1, if we go back to verse 1, There's no main verb there. Put away is a participle. So what does that mean? It's a supporting idea. Go to verse 2. It's only there. Long for. So, verse 2 is the main idea. Verse 1 is the supporting idea. What does that mean? Verse 1 needs verse 2 to happen. So here it is. You ready? The answer is so unbelievable because we expect. We don't expect verse 2. Here's what we expect. We expect something like... Put away sin by fighting it. Put away sin by wrestling with it. Put away sin by twisting and turning your will against it. Put away sin by counseling it. Reason with it. Or at least look at the damages and the destructiveness of it. Like this is what we do all the time, right? This is what schools are all about. Make right choices. Don't make bad choices. And they load you up with all the catastrophic consequences of bad choices. That's not bad to do. I mean, it's what we intuitively think. But this text is saying, man, if you want to change those things in verse 1, it's not going to work. We expect something like put away sin by beating yourself up over it. In other words, feel really bad about it. Make yourself feel really guilty about it. Feel lots of shame about it so that you finally change in that area. We expect things like put away sin by promising to do better. I'll do better. Like I'll be more, I'll read my Bible more, I'll pray more, I'll do more ministry, I'll, I'll volunteer more, I'll serve people more. I'll try to be more patient. I'll drink coffee quicker in the morning. How do we put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. You know what Peter says? Not by looking at it. You don't put it away by looking at it. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. You put it away by looking at something else, actually longing for something else. Please hear me. When you wrestle with your sin and you fight it and you're getting after it and you're twisting and turning your will, you're looking at it. You'll never change. When you counsel your sin and reason with it and load yourself up of all the destructive consequences of it, you're looking at it. You'll never change. When you beat yourself up over your sin, Make yourself feel really bad and shameful, you're looking at it. You'll never change. When you give in to your sin, you're looking at it. You'll never change. When you lose all hope of changing because of your sin, you're looking at it. You'll never change. Peter says, Look away from your sin, look at someone else, and you'll change. Let's look at verse 2 a little more detail just to prove it, because I know I need to prove it. Like newborn infants, now remember, he's, he's linking up to what he just said in 22 through 25. Remember when you were born again? The seed gave birth to you, so he's already assuming, like newborn infants, like a new person... So in other words, because you're a new person, because you're a new self, because you're born again, uh, long for. And long for means it's this feeling of tremendous need for something. It's like incredibly needy. So longing is need. You feel this great need for something. So in other words, what he's saying is that your old self, your flesh self can't long for what we're going to look at. It doesn't. It doesn't long for it. It doesn't have the ability to long for it. But when you get a new self, when you're born again, when you're a newborn baby, and the adamic self has now got a new self with it, you're not just a zombie, but now you're two natures in one person. You're not just one person in one nature. Now you have something that's new that needs some kind of spiritual milk and nourishment. And that's what we got here, Right. Here we go. Long for the pure spiritual milk. What's the pure spiritual milk? We don't have to guess because in verse 25, I should have read that whole text, but verse 25 tells us it's the gospel, it's good news, it's Jesus and his salvation. So there's only a certain kind of food that's spiritual that can feed a spiritual new self. Jesus and his salvation feeds you, nourishes you, Christian. Jesus and his salvation sanctifies you and changes you, Christian. Jesus and his salvation kills your sin, Christian, suffocates your sin, Christian, puts away all malice and all deceit and all slander, Christian. Nothing else can. Theologically, this is called sanctification by faith. This is taking the gospel, the good news, about what someone else has done, not what you do, about what someone else has performed, not what you perform, about what someone else has achieved, not what you've achieved, about what someone else has worked, not what you have worked, that hearing the complexities and the wonders of all of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, that that changes your life, sanctifies you. No willpower will do it. No law will do it. No secret will do it. No technique will do it. No ten steps will do it. Are you desperate for change? I need to change. Peter says, look away from your sin. Look at someone else. Okay. That's great. All right. If you've been here for a while, you've heard that many times. So, some of you this morning are thinking, "I'll still be mean." Verse two, uh, three. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, I'm going to give you a little tra- literal translation. Since you have experienced that the Lord is good. Those of you that need to know, this is a first-class condition cause, which means it's assumed to be true. So this is not a condition clause like, maybe if you've done this. If you do this, it's assuming you've experienced and are experiencing, growing to experience that the Lord is good. Okay? So it goes like this. Experience is goodness. So in other words, this is who Jesus is. It actually, in the original language for emphasis, has goodness at the front of the sentence. So it's almost like goodness, the very idea of it, the very concept of it. In other words, do you love a good sunset? That only exists because he's good. Do you like a good meal? There's only a sense of goodness in a meal. There's only a scrap or a concentration or a slight fleck of glory of goodness in anything that's good because he's ultimately good because he's the author of good. So he's good. You cut Jesus, he bleeds goodness. When you experience his goodness, it suffocates all those sins. It goes like this. What does it mean when you say, oh, I'm still going to be mean? Okay. You know what his goodness says? He loves you in your meanness. So put away all meanness. You're free to put it away now. He even loves you when you're mean. Wow. That can't be. Kind of suffocates meanness, doesn't it? Some of you are thinking it's impossible to not need approval. I mean, approval's my gasoline or my petrol, as they say across the pond. I need approval. How do, I, how do you not live a life needing approval? How do you function in relationships without not maneuvering relationships for approval? How do you handle your work without being motivated to get the approval of other people? How do you have a marriage without seeking the approval of your spouse? How do you raise children without raising approvable children? How do you do anything meaningful without it adding to your meaning and your approval in life? That's what we think, right? I mean, that, let's be honest. This is what it is. Since you have tasted experience that the Lord is good, experience is goodness. This text says. In other words, this is who Jesus is. He's good. He bleeds goodness. What does it mean? Well, specifically, if, if the potion, if the potion is approval, this text is actually saying Jesus gives you His approval. You get the approval of his very own righteousness. You get the approval of all his victories. You get the approval of all his works. The approval of all his wonders. The approval of all his accomplishments and all his achievements. Well, I don't know what they are. When you read the Bible, you'll start seeing them. You get the approval of all his obedience. You get the approval of all his perfection. You get the approval of the perfect, only human being. Pure recognition, pure applause, pure everyone falls down before him. All his accolades, all his medals, all his honors, all his victory, all his success, all his achievements, yours. You have his approval. You have all the approval you'll ever need. So you can put away hypocrisy and envy. You can suffocate it. All right, lastly, some of you are thinking we got to get the slander, right? Oh, how does this happen? How does this do it? Some people, though, let's just be honest. Some people are just very, very annoying. Right? Every time I go to Presbytery, I feel this way. some of you feel some people just deserve it. They deserve the unkind words said about them because they're true, right? And then some of us also, many of us though, we have this spiritual gift. We have what's called the spiritual gift of accusation and condemnation. (laughs) Uh, This is a gift that's given to us that That we don't need to understand people We don't need to seek to understand them We don't need to seek to understand situations We don't need to seek to understand the troubling events that happen We just have the gift We just know We have the gift which means we don't need to do all the hard relational work that's needed in relationships We just don't need to do that hard relational work We don't need to seek to understand someone We don't need to seek to be understood We don't need to try to be friends even though we disagree We just don't need to do it We just know We're right. That's the gift of accusation and condemnation. I'm right. You're wrong. We just have that gift. Since you have tasted, experienced that the Lord is good, experience is goodness, right? Experience is goodness. What does that mean? First, let's talk to those who have been slandered. Here's the issue Jesus was slandered too. And he's God. Do you know what that means? There's no way you will ever be able to avoid slander, being slandered in this life. Never. Because God got slandered. The perfect human being got slandered. So if you are trying to get through life without people saying unkind and untrue things said about you, it is a losing game. So it's better now to figure out how you're going to handle it. If your goal is to avoid it, you're going to lose. But if your goal is, can I relate to being slandered in a way that doesn't devastate me, that's a good goal. I've had to learn that one. It's a really good goal. So, this means that Jesus being slandered means that he understands the pain of slander. That's incredible, that God himself understands the pain of the slander you go through. That's wonderful. That means... He's with you. He gets it. And he gets it more personally and powerfully and concentrated than you do. And it also means this, that he he ultimately was slandered so that he would go to the cross and kill all the evil things and hurtful things that come at you. Like slander. Amazing. 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 Those are resources to help you. It doesn't take it away. It doesn't stop the pain. But that can help you. The other is this. Those of us that slander, what do we need to hear? Here's what we need to hear. Those of us that slander, we need to hear that Jesus became the worst slanderer that ever lived in human history on the cross for you. He became your slanderer which means he pays the debt of slander in your life by dying and being obliterated and absorbed it into his own being as God and as man and suffered comprehensive death for you. And it also means that he became enslaved to slander. So he was all malice, all deceit, All slander in him enslaved him. And when he rose, he broke out of it. Setting you free. So you're no longer enslaved to these powers of all malice, all deceit, all slander. You're free. Are you desperate for change? Everyone's desperate for change today. I need change. Everyone says, I need change. The culture says, we need change. Everyone through human history has said, I need change. The answer only is, look away from your sin, look at someone else, and you'll change. Let me pray for us.